0: Christchurch, New Malden, Sunday, the twenty seventh of November, twenty twenty two, nine thirty service. Tim Davis speaking on what do we learn about the coming of Jesus from King David. So, what can we learn about King uh, the coming of Jesus from King David? Um, I'll start by saying how much I love seeing that candle lit. Um, I love seeing it because for me, it officially marks the start of Christmas. Um, and I can start getting in the mood for Christmas. I can allow myself to feel Christmassy uh, without peeking too early. I don't know if you look at me. You know, if you kind of get in the mood for Christmas in the middle of November, by the 1st of December, you're kind of like, oh, it's a summer holiday now. I've kind of done Christmas. It's kind of taking too long. Um, but I think I just sometimes despair a bit when I see how early Christmas seems to appear in our nation. Um, you know, in the middle of September. We've not even left British summertime and there are stores with Christmas displays up. Uh, I try to ignore it, I really do, just to you know, avoid feeling too Christmassy, to not give in to the temptation to buy a mince pie in the middle of October, to demolish a bucket of Twiglets in the first week of November, you know, its I can't. But sometimes the signs are all there, aren't they? Christmas, everywhere. Um, all the shops start to get the Christmas displays in their window. Christmas decorations like hanging over the streets in London at the beginning of November. Um, A few years ago, if you're someone who used to regularly commute into London, um, you couldn't help but notice the Christmas display that Pimlico Plumbers by Vauxhall Station would have up on their roof on the roof of their building each year. Uh, Every year, it used to be there without fail. It's like see this light from miles around drawing you towards Pimlico Plumbers Christmas display. I remember one year I think it was 2013 they put them up on the 1st of October and I was feeling livid when I saw that um and yet all I got was Hugh Griffiths mocking me on Facebook for complaining about it, telling me to man up or something. Um, you know, it's not been too bad in recent years, actually. Um, I think Pimlico plumbers have stopped putting up a Christmas display, uh, and I deleted Hugh as a friend on Facebook. All good. Um, but anyway, do uh, you know. But, it's, it's hard not to... It's hard to miss something, to avoid something, when all the signs are there, isn't it? When everything is pointing to something coming, like Christmas, you can't just... You know, pretend it's not and ignore it. Can you? When all the signs are pointing to the coming of the Messiah over two thousand years ago, could you really ignore them? Fail to recognise them? And just like Pimlico Plumbers' Christmas display in 2013, those signs have been there for a long time. And um, we're thinking this morning, as I said, about what we can learn from David about the coming of Jesus. And as I said, the signs were there a long way back. When I was thinking about reading this talk, I was tempted to give you that really boring long list of names um, because I love a good biblical genealogy for that is it. Um, Except I don't actually find this that boring. Even though it says the son of, 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 for about 10 minutes it goes on. Um, I think these... No, genealogies like this in the Bible really show you something. They don't just tell you historically who descended from who, from who, from who. They show us history being shaped by God. And in the biblical genealogies of Jesus, we see God's plan of creation, salvation, and restoration just being carefully threaded throughout history. Um, this genealogy in Luke is a particular favourite of uh, mine. I find it really good, especially when you like, read it through with young people. Um, now, that might sound like a really odd, dull Sunday school activity to do. Um, and, you know, a genealogy is surely one of the least likely passages you choose to go through with a group of young people. And yet, when they read it through and they start to recognise some of the names, and they start to see how all of these names were part of a historical line to Jesus, when you see how God is working through the lives of so many people, how his plan of salvation was at work from the very beginning and one of the names that every young person when, I've done, when I read this through them recognises of course is David, we all know King David, possibly the most central figure of the, New, of the Old Testament and God certainly was at work through David's life, protecting him anointing him rebuking him producing a royal descendancy that would lead to Jesus. Uh, If you take a look at the genealogy at the beginning of Matthew's Gospel, it's slightly different from Luke's. Um, But Firstly, I think it's worth noting this. This is literally the first words in Matthew's Gospel. What a way to announce what's happening. With a great long list of names. Not with the narrative of Jesus' birth, as we get in Luke's Gospel, but right in to this genealogy. And yet, to a Jewish audience, people Matthew was really writing his gospel for, this wouldn't have been surprising at all. Genealogies were valuable for showing the purity of lineage. That was so important to a Jewish person. Um, The prophet Ezra speaks in chapter 2 of some of the returning exiles who'd searched their family records, but couldn't find them. And because of that, they were excluded from the priesthood deemed unclean because they couldn't find the records to demonstrate the purity of their lineage. Matthew, throughout this genealogy, is giving his readers this unmissable sign. He's holding up a big arrow right at the start of his gospel and pointing it at Jesus' ancestry and saying, look here, it's a sign you can't ignore. The Jewish readers would have been fascinated to see that Jesus could trace his genealogy all the way back to Abraham, but what Matthew is particularly keen to point out is David. Jesus' links to David. The genealogy is carefully arranged into groups of 14 names, from Abraham to David, and then from David to the exile in Babylon, and then from the exile in Babylon to Jesus. The numerical value of the name David in Hebrew is 14. And so you can see what Matthew's trying to really overlay and play here and that's the number of generations, accordingly, that Matthew has chosen to mention for each of those groups. It's not a comprehensive analogy like the one in Luke, but a selective list designed to make these names stand out. Abraham, David, Jesus. God promised Abraham that he would be a father of many nations, and the high point and fulfilment of this promise is undoubtedly King David, but the climax of this genealogy Is David's greater son, Jesus Christ. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Here, unmistakably, is evidence, a pedigree for Jesus, as it were, to prove a title and make a claim that of being the Messiah. Son of David was this messianic term used to identify who would be the savior of the Jewish people. And the Jewish people understood that the promised Messiah would be born of the line of David. And so, here in the genealogy, at the start of Matthew's gospel, before we even hear about the miraculous birth of Jesus or the miracles of Jesus' ministry, here is an unavoidable sign designed to prove that our Lord Jesus is the son of David and the son of Abraham, and therefore of that nation and family out of which the promised Messiah was to come. Because this, this sign was nothing new. The whole reason it should have made sense was because David himself had already been pointing the way. Uh, the great Christian commentator, Matthew Henry, describes Psalm 110, which we had read to us earlier, as pure gospel. Now, I must say, when I first read it for the no, the first time, I was like, meh, nothing special. Uh, but I wouldn't quite dismiss it, you know, its importance and in, in historical context. But I think actually the more and more I looked at it and more read about it, I could see this overwhelming concern with the expected Messiah, Jesus Christ. And that was something the Jews understood, something they believed. But we'll see later how some of the actual Pharisees in the day of Jesus responded with denial almost when confronted with the reality. Uh, some have described the psalm almost as David's creed, um, his set of beliefs, and when we start to have kind a of look at it and unpack it, we see a series of statements about Christ that ring true in our Christian beliefs and mirror the words of our Christian creeds. Firstly, our belief that God the Father and God the Son are one and the same. So the Lord says to my Lord, that David worships the Lord God of Israel, there was only one Lord. God had made that very clear. It's the first commandment. Yet here he says, the Lord says to my Lord. Two distinct, yet the same. He sits at the right hand of the Father. He rules at the right hand of the Father. He is the true King. In contrast, we see at the start of Matthew's Gospel, King Herod attempting to thwart the arrival of the Christ. By having all the boys in Bethlehem killed. And King Herod was not a king in the same way that David was many generations previously. He wasn't anointed by God the way David was. He was not of a royal line. He wasn't even Jewish, he was half-Jewish. But just to underscore the importance of genealogies to Jewish people back then, it's believed that Herod was so embarrassed about not being able to claim this pure Jewish lineage, and that his name was not in any official genealogies, that he ordered their destruction so nobody could claim a purer royal pedigree, and thus threaten his grip on the throne at the time when Jesus was born. Now, Herod was appointed king by the Roman Senate. He was no true king. He was ruthless, a murderer. But he certainly tried his best to be king of the Jews, One of his most memorable achievements um, after that murder and infanticide was to rebuild the temple. And even though it wasn't completed until several decades after his death, it was still an impressive legacy. But still, he wasn't a true king. He was not the one that David points us to. The one that Matthew holds up a big sign to point to in that genealogy right at the start of his gospel. Only Jesus was the true king we see in verses 5 and 6 that Jesus will in fact crush kings and rulers of the earth it says such as Herod um, from his seat at the right hand of God the father where he rules God the son but also judge all the nations that image presented it's, it's quite a harsh brutal image almost and it's true that we believe that God the son will come again To judge the living and the dead. We say it in the creed each week in services. And everyone will be held to account before God in judgment. But let's not get carried away and simply think of this as a brutal purge of everyone wicked, such as King Herod. Because actually, if we're honest, not one of us has never committed a sinful act that has at some point made us an enemy of God. That has been the opposite of God's nature and desire for how we live. David himself was well acquainted with actions of his own that effectively maze him in opposition to God's perfect nature. And yet he's not here crying out desperately for mercy, hoping to somehow avoid this inevitable judgment. No, he sees something else. Now, it can be easy to forget when we read sort of, passages like that, that this judge in question is the God, Jesus Christ, the God who is love. And this judgment is at the hands of Jesus himself. What is the source, the context for this judgment? God, whose unfailing, invincible, unfathomable love for the one being judged was seen in his act of sacrifice And restoration of mankind through the death and resurrection of his son Jesus Christ Jesus the Messiah is described in the psalm not only as a king who rules for all eternity but also a priest forever and that's a theme that Paul in his letter to the Hebrews kind of really riffs on in uh, chapters four and five that Jesus is somehow our great high priest as well And the priest would be the one who would intercede on our behalf, dealing with all matters relating to God. He would be the one responsible for all sacrifices made on behalf of the people. In Jesus, we have this great high priest who lived our life and who knew what it would take to intercede on our behalf, to say to God, these people are sinners. Let me speak to you about that. God the Son, interceding for all humanity, offering the perfect, the only acceptable sacrifice, his life, to God the Father. So that same God who sits in judgment is the same God who is interceding on our behalf forever. And we are therefore able to be restored to the creations that God intended us to be. The condemnation of a person that resists or denies Jesus, is seen not as bringing, is seen not as the bringing of that person up against a purely external standard, but a freeing of that person to be truly himself or herself. The freeing of that person to become the gift that he or she is, that God intended us to be. We are judged, and our old life is put to death. The new life, That which is fit to dwell in the kingdom of God is what remains. Now I seem to have a habit each Advent um, of ending up at some point speaking on uh, Isaiah 11. Um, I preach Advent almost every year that I've been sort of a lay minister and at least three or four times I end up being given Isaiah 11. I'm pretty sure uh, we have a bit of this coming next week. Um, But I think it's just relevant to look at because Much like this psalm, in fact, much like a great deal of the Old Testament, it too points toward Jesus, specifically it says, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, from his roots a branch will bear fruit. A shoot from the stump of Jesse, the father of King David, his son, David, would be this root, King David, from his roots a branch, Jesus, that will bear fruit." And that passage contains these wonderful images of justice and righteousness being restored to the world, of the whole order of nature being turned on its head, the wolf living with the lamb, the leopard lying down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the child and the snake and the cow and the bear, all living in harmony with one another. It's this incredible vision, is it not? And what a privilege it must have been for Isaiah to see that vision to being given those words to speak to the people. And so when I've spoken on this passage in the past, I like to ask the question, do we see what Isaiah saw? Not just because it's a handy little tongue twister, but I think it's really important to think that. Do we see the hope of the return of Christ, the new heaven and the new earth, where everything is restored to its original glory? Looking at Psalm 110, using that same question, do we see what David saw when he wrote that psalm? Do we see the Messiah? Do we see the signs pointing to the promised king who will rule over all, and the promised great high priest who intercedes for us all? Do we see him in the person of Jesus Christ? Jesus asked this of the Pharisees. He said, who, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Whose son, he's asking them, do you expect the Messiah to be? Who has promised to us? Who David so clearly pointed towards? The only thing they can reply is the son of David. So far, so good. The Messiah, the one who had set the Jewish people free, was to be a descendant, a son of David. So why does David, in that psalm, fully aware of the first commandment, you shall have no gods before me, call him Lord? The Pharisees can't answer this. They know what the answer is, but they can't accept it. If the Messiah was a descendant of David, how could this honoured king, King David, refer to his his descendant, his offspring, as Lord unless the Pharisees were ready to admit that the the Messiah was also the divine son of God they could not answer his question to do so would be to admit that Jesus was the son of God that he claimed to be that he was therefore the true king that everything that he represented everything his arrival meant was a threat to their way of life. The Messiah was not going to be just some really special, significant person like David, like Abraham, who would sort everything out at that moment for Israel at that moment in time. No, he would be more than that. He would be God incarnate. For only God incarnate, Jesus Christ, could restore the relationship between God and mankind. The signs were all there, not just in what David and the prophets spoke about hundreds of years previously, but in everything Jesus did in his life, in everything Jesus had done in history, uh, sorry, in everything God had done in history up to the birth of his son Jesus Christ. It's all a question of whether you choose to see them, not ignoring them, I'm responding the only way you can. If such a strong sign was pointing to the coming of Jesus by David and Matthew, then what about now, some 2,000 years after the event? Are the signs as strong? Perhaps not if we're competing with the likes of Pimlico Pond's Christmas display. But the Word of God, the Bible, is the biggest sign there is. But we too need to be signs. We need to reflect the light of God in this world. We need the word of God to live in our hearts. Are we pointing the way to Christ? Are we signs to those around us that are impossible to ignore? Knowing that Jesus is Lord over all, demands a change in the life of everyone who sees the sign of his arrival at Christmas. Knowing that Jesus is not only the judge over all, but also saviour of all, demands a fully open and honest response of everyone who sees the sign of the cross. And knowing that Jesus conquered death and restores our relationship with God to its true nature demands a response of utter joy and praise and thanksgiving. Of Everyone who sees the sign of the empty tomb, and with it, the hope and promise of the resurrection and the kingdom to come.